Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. It's good to have Deb and Steve with us today. After so many months, we've missed you all, and uh, so grateful to have you with us. And just to add a little bit to what Colin said, I did get an email this morning. I I know two families in Ukraine, missionary families, uh, that I got to know when I was over there teaching in 2000. And um, I don't know how the one family's doing, uh, but Bruce and Amy Alverd, they and their church at this point in time, and then many of the neighbors are actually living in the basement of the church building trying to stay below ground as much as they can. And so far, they're managing to survive. It's very cold, and, uh, but they have water, and they do have a certain amount of resource in food. Um, but gas is scarce, and going out and about is, is risky. They're, they're actually in the Kiev region is where they are. And the other family, um, Greg White and his family, are also in that same area. So keep them in mind, Bruce and Amy Alverd and then Greg White and his family. And I know there are many others there as well, but those are two that I'm aware of. And I've been wondering how they're doing and praying for them, so it was a blessing to get an email and know that they're okay. And it is bringing the church together, and it is also helping them in terms of uh, their, their witness to the unbelievers among them. These are the, the trying times that, that God uses to bring people to faith. Um, but brothers are suffering around the world and certainly in Ukraine at this point in time. So we do not want to forget the strangers. We, we want to keep those in mind who aren't, aren't with us. Well, join me in prayer, if you would. Father, what a delightful thing to be together. And, and it thrills my heart to see so many of your saints uh, together on this snowy morning. I wasn't sure how many would venture out, but what a delightful thing to see everyone here and, uh, Father, to even recognize the commitment to you and to the, the gathering of the saints, the communion of saints that is reflected in the fact of people leaving their homes on a cold morning and uh, venturing out in the snow and the ice to be together. And it is a great testimony to the blessedness, the preciousness of your church. And I pray that we would only continue to grow in our sense of that blessedness, that we would never take for granted the great gift of the brothers and sisters, the great gift of the communion of saints. Father, for this is our heritage and this is the legacy, this is the destiny for which uh, we live and unto which we look. That gathering of your people that will be together and together in a perfect, undiminished, 
perfectly intimate fellowship of worship, of service, of love, of devotion for all eternity. It is so true that your church is heaven on earth. And I pray that it would be so for each one of us. Bless us as we continue our worship in the hearing of the word. And Father, exhort us, reprove us, and encourage us, ultimately that we would be built up together into this most holy faith. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're continuing in chapter 13 of Hebrews, as the writer brings together these final exhortations, closing out his instruction. And it is important for us to keep in mind that these exhortations are, just as I said, they are implications that come out of the instruction that he's provided. Implications of what it is to know this Messiah, what it is to be sharers in his life, what it is to be partakers in this grand and glorious renewal that God has inaugurated in him. To be those who are under the lordship of our triumphant reigning king and to be manifesting his life and his love, the truth of his new creation in the world. We saw that the first, and this goes back a couple of weeks, but we saw that the first three verses really kind of hang together in the sense that the writer gives this overarching exhortation to love. Love as preeminent, love as the very marrow of the Christian ethic, the Christian obligation. Let the love of the brethren continue. And then we saw that he gave two specific examples of what that love in practice might look like. The practicing of hospitality to those who are not relationally close to us. And then the remembrance, the holding in prayer and concern and even practical ministry to the extent that we can of those who are not physically or circumstantially near to us, those who are in prison, those who are being mistreated, persecuted in whatever way, being mindful, letting love for the brethren continue, especially as it pertains to those who are not a part of our immediate circumstances. But then now in verse four, he turns his attention immediately to marriage, which at first glance, at least to me, seems like kind of a perhaps a strange transition to be dealing with these ideas of, of, of the brethren and loving the brethren and, and ministering to strangers and, and to those in prison to turn immediately to marriage may seem like somewhat of a, a strange deviation. But certainly the point of commonality, if nothing else, is in this uh, obligation of love. We would understand verse 4 through that overarching ethic, that overarching obligation of love. That is the most basic characteristic of the Christian life. And I think the writer in that sense is really seeing what he says about marriage as flowing out of this ongoing obligation of love. Let the love of the brethren continue. And that may perhaps make us question, okay, if, this, if he's viewing marriage and the marriage bed within the context of the love of the brethren, is he only talking about Christian marriages in the sense of two believing spouses 
Or is he saying something more than that? And I hope that we will, we will see as we move through here that the writer is talking first and foremost about marriage as such. He's not distinguishing who your spouse is, and he's obviously writing to believers, but who your spouse is, what's the nature of their faith, how strong is their faith, do they even have faith? But the way in which Christians should perceive this thing called marriage. And he says that it is to be held in honor among all. This little prepositional phrase, among all, really has kind of an ambiguity to it and maybe intentional, I don't know. Generally, the way the English versions render it, it gives the impression that amongst all of the household of faith, marriage should be held in high esteem. But it can also carry the sense of let marriage in every respect be held in high esteem. And I think both are clearly true. Let marriage be held in high esteem amongst all the brethren, but also in every respect, in all of its particulars. He presumes love in his first exhortation, and the writer clearly understood that love is an unqualified obligation. And so certainly that is to condition how his readers would even understand marriage. We talked before when we, when we dealt with the first three verses how Paul says really love is the fulfillment of the law. In that sense, there's really only one commandment. And any commandments that we might mention have their fullness, they have their truth, they have their fulfillment in that obligation of love. And that conditions this uh, sense of marriage as well and how to view it. I think when we look at Paul's writings also, particularly in 1 Corinthians 7, we see that this obligation of Christians towards marriage, Paul doesn't distinguish is your spouse a believer, is your spouse not a believer in terms of what the Hebrews writer is getting at. Believers are to have a view of their marriage regardless of their spouse, regardless of the faith of their spouse. Union with Christ, union with Christ initiates a new, and I would argue a true, obligation of love in that in Christ that obligation can actually be met for the first time. Whoever loves is born of God. There is no love, no living of love outside of sharing in the God who is love. But being partakers in Christ means that a new, a true obligation of love with respect to our spouse now not only becomes a possibility but an obligation something that is not possible for those outside of Christ. And that obligation of love is true irrespective of whether our spouse is a Christian or not. The Christian ethic has as its very marrow this obligation of love. And I think the writer is, is recognizing, I'm, I'm sure he recognized, but I think he's putting his finger on that there is no arena of our lives in which that ethic comes to as sharp of a point or as sharp of a focus as in the arena of marriage. 
There is no other human relationship that shares the depth of intimacy that God intends for marriage, the one shared by husband and wife. If this obligation of love is universally true, and that is true, we are to be those who are characterized by love in all of our relationships, not just those who are brothers and sisters. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, when you love those who hate you, when you pray for those who persecute you, in that way you show yourselves to be children of your father, because he causes his son, the son, to rise on the evil and the good, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But in this thing we call marriage, there is what God has ordained and put in place, this thing that is a one flesh union. You see that ordination of this thing called marriage already in the creation account. A man shall leave his father, mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus, in speaking to his own generation, when they asked him about divorce and the rightness of divorce, and what about what Moses said, and how should we think about this? In Matthew 19, he said, what God has joined together, let not man put aside. The two become one flesh. And there is no other human relationship that is expressed in that way. No other human relationship that God ordains and defines in that sort of a way. A one flesh union that is ordained and sanctioned by God himself. And we know that marriage was intended to look beyond itself. It is a this worldly ordinance, right? There are some religions that teach the perpetuation or the perpetuity of marriage beyond the grave, but we know from the scriptures that marriage ends with death. The death of one of the partners ends the marriage. And even with two believing partners in the eternal state, there is no marriage. Marriage is a this life, this worldly ordinance but it has profound significance in that it speaks to something beyond itself. And specifically, the one flesh union of marriage speaks to the one spirit union that exists between God and his people, specifically, more narrowly, between Christ the bridegroom and his church. Paul said to the Corinthians, whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And the scripture teaches us that the one flesh union of marriage is a symbol for that. Common passage that we use often at weddings, Ephesians 5. Paul explains how husbands are to think about and relate to their wives and how wives are to think about and relate to their husbands. And he ties that all into the relationship between Christ and his church. And he says it is a great mystery, but ultimately I'm talking about Christ and his church. The relationship between the true bridegroom and his bride is a one spirit union and marriage speaks to that. That's why it has a significance beyond itself. And I think that's why it's fitting and appropriate that the writer would deal with it here. As he's talked about all of what God has accomplished in the Messiah, what it is that we're a part of, the importance, the crucial importance of persevering in faith, 
persevering in faithfulness, helping each other to grow up in Christ, he puts marriage in the center of his exhortations. It's a very fitting thing. And all the more, again, because behind the writer's exhortation is this reality that he understands the transforming of human existence that has come in Jesus. And that's why I started the way that I did, saying we don't want to excise these exhortations from the larger epistle and all of the instruction that the writer has brought. These are, in a sense, the capstone of that instruction, some practical counsel as to, okay, what does this, all of this, this high Christology, all of this presentation of, of God's triumph in the Messiah and our share in him and the destiny appointed for us, what does that mean for the lives that we live now? And fundamentally, if the human being is transformed through union with the Messiah, then all of the dimensions of human existence ought also to be transformed. Our marriages ought to be transformed. All of life now takes on a different quality. And Paul very much speaks to this in his epistles. The Christian life is not just polishing the apple. It's a new creation. If any man is in Christ, new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And Paul viewed that that new creation meant that everything in life changes. Everything in life changes. Not that our circumstances change, not that our difficulties change, not that our you know, family situation changes or our job situation or you know, the, the neighbor that, that uh, plays loud music at three in the morning or whatever. All those things don't change. But we change in a way that the way that we think about and relate to all of life changes. We have a new mind. If the human being, the human person, is transformed in the Messiah, according to this renewal that the writer of Hebrews has labored so hard to develop, then every dimension of human existence also changes, including marriage. Well, I think this is an especially big deal in the historical context in which the writer is writing. As I've said so many times in, you know, in different contexts of, of looking at things, the ancient world was very different than the world we know. And to speak the way the scriptures do about marriage is a very radical thing in the world that existed at that time. Marriage was not at all what we understand it to be today. We talked about this already in Hebrews, again, in a different context. But in the ancient world, almost uniformly across the ancient world, marriage was transactional and utilitarian. Love had little or nothing to do with it. Marriage was a transaction. It was a contractual thing. And in the Roman Empire at the time, girls as young as 12, if they were from the nobility, they could be betrothed to a man. 
And marriage was utilitarian. Marriage served a practical purpose. It was based on social, economic, political considerations. The forming of alliances, the securing of of, of family income, of family stability. It had nothing to do with who do you love, who do you want to marry. That wasn't a consideration. In fact, in most instances, the children, the, the, the ones who got married, typically as teenagers, didn't even have any say in it. It was irrelevant what they wanted. It was irrelevant what they thought. Marriage was not about love and relational intimacy. It was utilitarian. It was pragmatic. And that meant that people often sought the kind of intimacy that people want, you know, the male-female relational intimacy, even in terms of affection and emotions. They often sought that in relationships outside of their marriage. And in certain contexts, that was even acceptable, particularly for men. This was the woman that you married because of these pragmatic reasons that made it the right thing to do, but you had your mistresses and you had the people on the side who you actually were interested in and who you actually had some sort of love for. And in the ancient world, women, for the most part, had little or no rights. In some cultures, they were virtually property. They could be disposed of however the husband pleased. Same thing with children. It wasn't the world of marriage that we understand. It wasn't the world of marriage that we know. It was patriarchal. It was hierarchical. Women, like I said, had virtually no rights. And even within society, they were hierarchical. You had all kinds of, of, of uh, uh, hierarchy of social status, political status. Even in the clothing you wore, you knew where you fit in the pecking order. Slave or free, and even rankings within the slave class, and certainly rankings within the, the class of freemen, nobility the guilds, you you had a very stratified culture, and that same stratification applied to marriage. Even in the Jewish world, and as much as, as people today, it's popular to say, you know, particularly with feminist theology, to say, oh, you know, this Christianity stuff is very sexist and misogynistic and, and has a low view of women. It, it, it perpetuates the patriarchy The truth is that God's instruction, God's design, the way that God revealed what Israel's life was to be, his Torah, if you will, introduced a dignity and and forms of equality between men and women that the world had never known. But certainly in the implementation, it was imperfect. And you can see even in the Jewish world of Jesus' day that it was still very patriarchal. Men had a closer approach in the temple than women did. Women couldn't be involved in certain things in the synagogue. A man could, depending on which rabbinical school you were following, a man could divorce his wife for virtually any reason. But a woman couldn't divorce her husband without permission from the husband. So there were still... 
there were still these kinds of, of, of inequities or a stratifying of who's on top, who's on the bottom, who's in charge, who's not in charge, who can do what, who can't do what. And the reason, as I said, is this fundamental principle of the curse. When, when, when the fall happened, it introduced alienation at all levels within the human race. As I've said before, the me and not me. There's me and there's not me. And everything that's not me is viewed through the lens of myself. How it seems to me, how profitable it is to me, how worthwhile it is to me, the procedure of the king. And marriage was no different. It wasn't exempt from that. The world under the curse runs on this division. It runs on these distinctions. It runs on a ranking. And that's what's always defined marriage, and in a very oppressive way in some instances, because, again, of a patriarchal world. Well, this is the circumstance into which the writer is speaking and saying marriage is to be honored in all respects, by all, and the marriage bed undefiled. Very radical thing in the world that these Hebrews were living in. And his point is that Jesus' death and resurrection is is the witness that God has judged and put to death that order of things. That way of doing life, that way of thinking, that way of being, that way of doing marriage, that way of having relationships, the me and the not me. You see see that that idea in the male-female thing, even in the Genesis account, in the context of the fall. The enmity between Adam and Eve... Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the desire for your husband thing there is not a good thing. It's not desire in the sense that you just want to love and serve and nurture your husband, and he's going to lord it over you. It's the desire that is a desire for mastery. And the husband's going to rule over you. Male-female relationships are always defined in the world that we know in that way. Women use what's available to them to make things go the way they want it to go, and men use what's available to them to make things go the way they want it to go. But in the Messiah, God has judged and put to death that former order of things. He has overcome the curse. And in that way, he has judged and put to death the way of human life and the way in which we do human relationships that all of us have known, that all of us have lived under, and he has inaugurated an entirely new order of things. And these Hebrews were sharers in that transformation. And as I said, that means then by implication that every arena of life is to be now seen through the lens of and ordered by this reality of new creation in the Messiah. That includes male-female relationships. That includes marriage. 
The former order was me in contradistinction to you. Now in the Messiah, human relationships have become me in you and you in me. As the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. The same essential unity of mind, purpose, will, heart, affection that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit has now become the pattern for human relationships. And that's a profound thing. I don't know that we often think about it in that way. But God's intent in renewing all things is that relationships within, among his human creatures would reflect and express the relationships that exist between Father, Son, and Spirit. I and you, you and me. When you're, when you're honored, I'm honored. When you're glorified, I'm glorified. The Spirit bears witness to the Son. The Son bears, bears witness to the Father. The Father's glorified when the Son is glorified. It's that big theological word, perichoresis, the interpenetrating love and life of Father, Son, and Spirit. The truth of the Father is in the Son and the Spirit. The truth of the Son's in the Spirit and the Father. They're not what they are apart from one another. They have their life, their vital existence in relation to one another. And that's God's intent for the human race, that we would be one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. It's by living out that unity and intimacy that Christians proclaim the truth of the gospel of God's kingdom. And I know I say that all the time, but, it, but, but this was Jesus' high priestly prayer. Father, the way that the world will understand that you sent me, the way that the world will really understand what my coming was all about, was not when they get told how their sins can be forgiven, though that's important. Not when they're told how they can uh, have a blessed existence in the afterlife, though that's a part of this. The world will understand only when they see a community of people who are one as you and I are one. I and you, you and me. Because that's what new creation is all about. The gospel is not a message about how to get saved in the, in the ultimate sense. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the good news that in the Messiah, God has accomplished this purpose that he intended from the beginning to sum up everything in the Messiah. It's this thing of new creation. Well, what does that look like? It looks like in the present age, a community of people who are doing human life together in a totally different way. That's what it looks like. And that has to extend to marriage as well. And yet clearly from the very beginning of the inauguration of this new creation church, the church struggled with the issue of marriage. And you can see it in the, in the Corinthian epistle, certainly in the first Corinthian epistle. One of the ways is very early on the church began to adopt, which was some of the very pagan ideas associated with the fact that there's a superior virtue, a superior spirituality in singleness, in celibacy. It's continued in Roman Catholicism to this day, right? There's something in us that says, well, I'll actually be more holy if I don't have a wife or a husband, and if I do have a wife or a husband, then celibacy in my marriage would be a way to have a superior virtue. 
And, and Gnosticism began to make its inroads very quickly in the church too, certainly by the, the latter quarter of the first century. And fundamental to Gnostic thought, which predated Christianity, but it wove itself in very quickly, Gnosticism has, sees a fundamental distinction between matter and spirit. And matter was never intended to exist. All there was initially was spirit. And a rebellious demiurge brought matter into existence. But that was never the way that it was intended to be. And you see this even in uh, the, the philosophical, you know, Platonism and, and, and Greek philosophy preceding Christianity, that the goal is to escape your body and have your spirit go into the pleroma. Because matter is bad, physicality is bad, it's imperfect, it's flawed, it's unclean. And so the idea is to get rid of this body and have my spirit be liberated. You see, at the death of Socrates, he spoke in that way. Now I'm finally to be free of the fetter of this physicality. And Gnosticism found its way into the church very quickly because of, again, this contrast between flesh and spirit. And they understood it wrongly, but it became an an easy thing to graft into. And so that also led people, Christians, to think, okay, any sort of physical intimacy with a spouse is is less than perfectly virtuous. What, What I should do is I should try to remove myself as much as possible from any sort of physical involvement. Eating as little as possible, asceticism, denying any sort of bodily needs to the extent that I possibly can. And all of those things were working their way into the church's understanding of how to view marriage. And in a kind of funny way, the Christian church began to disparage marriage, perhaps in a different exact sense than tended to be true in paganism, but very much reflective of that, a natural way of thinking about marriage that the writer is calling them away from. So my point in all of that is to say that the writer had more in mind here than simply uh, Recognize that marriage is important and honor your marriage vows. Don't be unfaithful to your wife. Okay, let's move on. And I'm not saying he's saying less than that or he's not saying that, but he's saying much more than that. His concern is more than simply that people will be faithful to their spouse and they will honor their marriage vows. The overarching principle is he's jealous for his readers to persevere in their faith and their faithfulness, to hold tightly to the truth of the Messiah and who they are in him and not be carried away, not be distracted, not find themselves wandering away, being led astray, but to hold tightly to that. And there could be no such faithfulness apart from holding marriage in proper regard. And that includes a proper understanding of the marriage bed. Holding the truth of the one flesh union of husband and wife. And that has two dimensions. It means marital intimacy on the one hand. It means marital fidelity on the other hand. And I won't take the time today, but I'd encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. 
because Paul deals with both of those. You see, if marriage is a one flesh union, then it ha- that, uh, the truth of that one flesh union has to be in- attested in two ways. Not just by faithfulness to my marital vow, but in the marital intimacy as well. In that sense, Paul would argue celibacy within marriage is not a good thing. It lies against the truth of the one flesh union. Both aspects are critical to a truthful and a faithful testimony within marriage, which is what God is concerned with, a truthful and a faithful testimony. Remember, again, the issue is that all things, all of the the components and dimensions of life in Christ will bear truthful witness. And that includes marriage as well. So the writer says, God will judge those whose marital behavior, he says fornication and adultery, but together they really embody any sort of contrary behavior in the context of marriage that lies against the truth of marriage. And he says, those will be judged. Behavior that lies against the truth of one's relation, uh, this one flesh union, which and, and ultimately its own testimony to the one spirit relation that exists between Christ and his church. Whatever exists in marriage that, that argues against that or lies against that, God will judge. And that obviously includes sexual unfaithfulness, but he's saying more than that. It's not just that. Husbands and wives can remain faithful to one another in that sort of a way and still be in a position of being judged by God because of how they're viewing their marriage, how they're living it out. Are they looking at it through the right lens? Well, this seems pretty easy to understand in the case of a believing spouse, a believing husband. Both are theoretically on the same page. Both understand that they are together sharers in Christ and that that essential union in Christ is the truth of their relationship. So we talked about in in your marriage ceremony, right? For believers, the actual relationship is their shared union in Christ. Marriage is just one way in which that shared union can play itself out. When death breaks the marriage, that husband and wife will be members of one another forever. Not as husband and wife, but as fellow sharers in the Messiah. So they approach their marriage as believers in Christ as I am in you, you are in me, sharers in one another, as opposed to let's fix our marriage. The marriage is going away. It's a temporary, transitory thing. But the union in the Messiah endures forever. And that's the ultimate relationship. That's the essential union that finds expression in marital union. Those who are one spirit in the Lord everlastingly in this life take on a one flesh union as husband and wife. And so it's very easy to see how this works for a believing husband and wife. But what about those who have an unbelieving spouse? And doubtless some of these Hebrews had unbelieving spouses. They were Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ. 
And whether as male believers or female believers, I'm sure that many of them had unbelieving spouses. And the writer doesn't say, I'm only talking about those marriages in which both parties are Christians. Again, in the early church, it was at least somewhat common. You see hints of this in in Paul's Corinthian epistle. There were hints or there was some inkling that if I've come to faith in Christ, I now need to leave my unbelieving spouse. We're unequally yoked. I I shouldn't remain with that person. If I'm to live a holy life to the Lord, I need to put away that unbelieving spouse. And Paul says, no, no. And my point is that I think the writer would say, regardless of the circumstances of your spouse, you as Christian people need to think about your marriage in this way. If you are both in Christ, yes, there's a blessedness in that, such that Paul would say, if your spouse dies and you remarry, you you can remarry, but remarry only in the Lord. Not because God is trying to limit the, you know, the, the, the database of possible spouses, but because there is an in, inherent difficulty between believers and unbelievers being married. It, it's, it's like Tevye's line in Fiddler on the Roof, if you ever have seen that. He says, a bird may love a fish, but where would they make a home together? If marriage is to be a one flesh union, the most profound intimacy attainable uh, as human beings in this life, how can you have a meeting of the minds? How, How can you live in the same world, so to speak, when one inhabits the new creation and one inhabits the old creation? There's always going to be a disconnect between you. There's always going to be a distance between you in that regard. But Paul doesn't say, yeah, get rid of that spouse. He says, no, you are exactly the same in your marriage as if your spouse were a believer in this sense. You bear the fragrance of Christ. You honor the Lord. If your spouse is a believer, the two of you are ministering Christ to one another such that you're growing up in all things into him. There's an edifying. If your spouse is not a believer, your faithfulness is the fragrance of Christ by which you live in hope that God may save that person. Paul says, you don't know, O husband, whether you will win your wife. You don't know, O wife, whether you will win your husband. If your faithfulness causes that person to abandon the marriage, then you have to let him or her go. But you don't bail out. You be Christ in that home. The fragrance of Christ for the sake of that spouse's faith in hope, for the sake of the children's faith in hope. Hold marriage in high esteem and honor the integrity of the marriage bed. And so I just want to conclude by by kind of summing up again what I think is the most important point in all of this, which is that the fundamental issue, if Christ has inaugurated his new creation, has it taken all things into its grasp? No. 
It's just as Peter says, where is the hope of his coming? Don't all things continue as they have from the beginning of the world? The world's a rotten place. Where is this kingdom of God? I don't see it. Where is this new creation? I don't see it. Social institutions are corrupt. Businesses are corrupt. Government is corrupt. Families are corrupt. The world's a rotten place. Where is this kingdom of God? And Paul would say it exists in the household of faith. The the kingdom of God is now, it has its existence in the community of people who are sharers in the life of Christ. The church is the kingdom of God. The church is the substance of new creation. But that means then that our responsibility to testify to the gospel, if you will, the gospel of new creation, the way in which we bear this testimony is by lives that manifest it. And I'm not whole cloth against, you know, tracts or gospel presentations or whatever, but I think for the most part they're misleading. Because we go to people and we say, this is about how you can go to heaven. And it's a very individualistic, personal, uh, you know, uh, private spirituality. Paul wasn't imprisoned, and, and those who were witnesses of Christ with him weren't imprisoned because they were telling people of the Roman Empire how they could go into a marvelous afterlife when they died. That would not get anybody in prison because everybody was interested in a marvelous afterlife after they died. They had different views of how that would happen, but everybody had a sense that they were going to go off to a wonderful place if they lived in a certain way. No, what got him in prison was preaching the kingdom of God, Christ as Lord. A new kingdom under a new sort of rule that operates according to a new set of principles. Well, where is that? Where does that occur? Where do I see that? We see that in the testimony of human beings in their lives, in the way that they relate, in all of the dimensions and aspects of their lives. So what's my point? The marrow of our testimony isn't our words, it's an embodiment. Our testimony is a matter of embodiment. We embody that testimony. We don't just speak words or give people tracts. And that tells us how we have to be present in the world. We have to be observed in the world. We can't just hide off someplace waiting till the rapture comes or whatever. We have to be engaged in a way as people, but certainly as a community, that the world can see. This is the way the early church was. And there was a lot of confusion about who these Christians were, but they saw them living as a community in relation to one another in a way that made the world take notice. We bear truthful witness to God's gospel of new creation when every arena of our lives manifests it in the church and to the watching world. A very familiar passage. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, and, and it's a little different context in the sense that Paul is giving his apologetic for himself and the gospel that he brought to Corinth because they're at odds with him. They're finding fault with him. They, they, they found other super apostles. You know, Apollos came. Apollos was a great orator. They're impressed with Apollos. And they're finding fault with Paul and even in some sense accusing him of being a phony. And so this is partly his personal apologetic. But, he, but listen to what he says and how he understands this idea of the gospel and, as I'm saying, an embodied testimony. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. We're open, open in the sight of God, and I hope that we are also manifest in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us, it controls us, it drives us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Believer or unbeliever, we look at people in a different way because everything has changed in the Messiah. Even though we knew Christ according to the flesh, even though we understood the Messiah in a fleshly way, we don't know him that way any longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through the Messiah and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, what is this ministry of reconciliation? That God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us that word of reconciliation. And therefore, as ambassadors for Christ, as though God himself were entreating through us, we beg men on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we should become, that we would embody the righteousness of God in him. What is Paul saying? We are the embodiment of this gospel that we proclaim. We don't just speak words. We embody. We are the living, walking, breathing truth. The righteousness of God that has prevailed in the Messiah to restore all things ultimately. We embody that. We embody that. Well, certainly that then means that all of our lives have to be brought under that new definition. That's what it means to employ the mind of Christ, to have our thoughts, our attitudes, our understanding, every aspect and circumstance of life brought into subjection to the truth of what God has accomplished in him. That great passage 
in 1 Corinthians on spiritual warfare. How does Paul put it? He says, we are tearing down strongholds in the mind. Ways of thinking, ways of understanding. Apparently lofty thoughts that are actually raised up against the knowledge of God. We tear those things down and we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's not just enough to say, be faithful in your marriage. It's not enough to say in some abstract way, hold marriage in high esteem. The writer is saying, view marriage and view your own marriage through the lens of the new creation in the Messiah, the renewal that's come in him, and the significance of marriage finding its own fulfillment in that renewal. And that's a very convicting thing, because again, all of us fail in that way in our marriages. The the people that we love the most are the ones that we often treat the worst. Certainly that we respect maybe the least, Sometimes we love our brothers and sisters in Christ better than we love our wives and our husbands in Christ. But there can't be any perseverance in faith and faithfulness that doesn't deal with this issue of taking marriage and the married life captive to this reality of new creation in the Messiah. If we embody the gospel we proclaim, our marriages have to embody that as well. In that sense, it may be better not to marry in some instances, right? Because it's a huge responsibility. It's a great obligation. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that if we take nothing else today away, I pray that we take one thing. And that's the fact that there is no aspect of our lives, our circumstances, what goes on in our heads, what goes on in our hearts, what goes on in our daily lives. There is nothing that doesn't come under this obligation to be made subject to the lordship of christ if we are indeed your people we embody the truth that we proclaim and it's not just that it's wrong to say certain words and speak certain truths and then live completely contrary to them certainly that is wrong and we all know the saying that i can't hear your words because your actions are speaking too loudly But it can be much more subtle than that. We can be pious people. We can be moral people. We can be circumspect people. And yet we can still have lives that don't testify to the truth of this new creation that has come in Jesus. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old things have passed away. Newness has come. And I pray that we would see that all of our lives need to be brought into this, what ought to be a delightful subjection to the Lordship of Christ in that way. 
that we would have his mind in all of our relationships, in all of our circumstances, in the hardships, in the ease, in the good times, in the bad times, that we would persevere in faith, walking out this truth as it is in him, not just for our own sake, for the sake of our peace and our joy, not even just for the sake of our loved ones, our families, not even just for the sake of the congregation of which we're a part, but for the sake of a faithful and truthful, authentic testimony in the world. Only in this way will the world hear and see and discern the gospel of the kingdom. Bind us to these things, Father. Give us great persevering faith and faithfulness in them. Hold us tightly. Bind us to yourself. Bind us to your mind by the Spirit. And give us all that is needful to live as faithful sons and daughters. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.